This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Alexandra Stein, the author of Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, Attachment and Cults and Totalitarian Systems. So this book is, it's excellent. And I would put it up there with, if you're like me and you're kind of an amateur researcher in this space, I would put it up there with J.M. Berger's Extremism. It is, it is a book that greatly distills ideas and research and of what is a cult, how do people attach themselves or create attachment in cults, and where do they go from there? And it's, it's a great book. And the reason we wanted to have a show on this was because of essentially our first research point was QAnon. We wanted to do shows on QAnon and as time went on, you know, a lot of research came out, both academic and sort of long form journalism. And we realized, okay, the spaces, the stories have already been told. The narratives have already been told. Everything interesting that could be said was probably already said. So we said, so we went back to the drawing board and we said, okay, let's dig a little deeper, right? Let's, let's not focus on specific groups. Let's focus on specific processes and, you know, specific sociocognitive, psychological and political processes that led, that lead people to cults and stay in cults. So from there, we started on Robert Lifton, his study on, I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm sure Rinko, the Japanese group, Terror in the Mind of God. I think that's the title, that's another book. And then we came to Terror, Love, and Brainwashing. That was suggested to us through Twitter, actually, <clears throat> funny enough. And when I started the book, it's, per- it's, it's a perfect distillation of cults and how people attach themselves in cults. You know, attach themselves to the leader, attach themselves to each other. And it's just, it's very good. It's one of those books that are just going to stay on my research bookshelf for a very long time. So with that being said, please welcome Alexandra Stein. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. So I want to start off with a very basic question. And that's about what are the elements that go into a, a cult? You have a leader, you have an ideology, you have individuals. What is, when you look at a cult and, or when you look at a, t- a totalitarian system, how do you begin to conceptualize each part and how do you sort of describe those parts? Well, what I've kind of, the way I look at it is I kind of have this five point definition as a way to simplify it. It all starts with the leader at the top. That's the first point who has two qualities. They're charismatic, which is sort of obvious But what's less often spoken about is that charisma on its own is necessary, but not sufficient. You also need the leader to have the quality of authoritarianism or being a bully. So you need both those qualities. And that kind of is the engine of the system and initiates the system. The second element is that the structure and the lead creates really in a 
gradual kind of way usually the structure that is uh, steeply hierarchical where they have all the control it they may have lieutenants but even the lieutenants are pretty dis- dispensable with and the key thing about the structure is that it's highly isolating it isolates people from the outside world it isolates them in interesting ways from each other which we can talk about during this uh, podcast and it also isolates people from their own internal dialogue so the structure is very isolating the third element is the type of ideology and obviously we see these you know cults or totalist systems with a huge variety of ideologies i mean they can be extreme left they can be extreme right currently more often on the extreme right than the left they can be religious they can be commercial they can be yoga they can be you know it doesn't really matter in a way but what's fascinating is the structure of the ideology rather than the particular content and the structure of the ideology very much reflects the structure um, of the group so the ideology kind of tells followers or gives a justification to followers for the ultimate power of the leader and for their isolation and it various other things it also tend it also always has a kind of dissociative quality the ideology and it's exclusive so if you're in one of these groups you have to believe this belief system it's the only one you need and it covers everything everything that's ever happened that's happening now and that will happen in the future so it's exclusive and all encompassing and that's a really key part and that again reflects the structure which is similarly totalistic right so structure and the ideology are both totalistic then you have the fourth element which is the process that takes place in these groups and that's what i call brainwashing and i use that word because i think it's historically useful it originated in in maoist china as part of the reeducation camps there and i think it's lay people can understand it in a gut level way and i like to use plain english and I'm, i'm currently in the uk in the land of george orwell and you know he was the great proponent of using plain english but it, brainwashing also can be called many other things coercive control coercive persuasion thought reform mind control some people use that expression we're all referring to the same thing and that's the process of what happens to people's brains really which i'll also go into later in much more detail but it's basically a a process of deagentifying people taking away people's agency and replacing it with with the groups so as to speak agency i don't know if a group can have agency but with with the groups determination of what one's going to think and what one's going to do and yeah i'll explain that further further along so you have the charismatic authoritarian leader the isolating structure the exclusive ideology this process of brainwashing and all of those together create deployable follow- followers so the leader if they can succeed in setting all those four things up can get followers who will 
do as they're told, regardless of their own survival interests. So that's kind of my overarching, most simple way of describing what these systems are. So maybe that's my first answer to that to that question. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but as a research note, why use the word system? Is it, I mean, it, it seems to kind of as a reader, I, you kind of have to infer that all these parts exist at the same time and they're all interacting. So if one part was removed, then you wouldn't have a cult or walk us through like the, like this as a system, like why, why is it a system? Why do the parts interact in such a way to produce the outcome that is a, a cult or a totalist system or a totalitarian arrangement? And actually it took me quite a while to, think of that phrase because what I was trying to get at with that phrase is you know Lifton who you mentioned earlier I don't know if he coined but at least he used and popularized the idea of totalism which he was coming from his research of Chinese and North Korean camps and re-education camps and, and prisons from the 50s where a lot of the groundwork, the foundational work in this area happened with other scholars too, Edgar Schein and Margaret Singer were also involved. So he talked about totalism. Hannah Arendt, who I rely a lot on her work, and of course she became quite the uh, flavor of the month during Trump's regime. She had, her scholarship had kind of been forgotten, but that kind of, she people started seeing the value of it in the last few years. Anyway, she talked about totalitarianism and she talked about totalitarian movements and then a totalitarian state and how a totalitarian movement was the kind of pre where it was non, not state actors, but political movements trying to get to become the state. So there were all these and then there were cults, which is kind of the way I came into this. So there were all these different words for these different things that all operated the same in the similar way. Similarly, some one-on-one -on -one relationships also look the same. So I had to try to find a phrase that brought all these things under an umbrella, the same umbrella and totalist system was what I came up with. But having said that, I think these are systems as you were trying to get at in that they are of very particular social form with very particular dynamics that are remarkably predictable. You know, they have a mechanism that we can say, this is how it's going to work. And exactly as you said, if you take one of the elements out, it doesn't work well. These are all tied together. And once you have them, you kind of know what's going to happen. So, you know, we know, for instance, and I think this is part of the one of the pieces I've really emphasized in the book and in my work and my research, is we know these systems are going to interfere with people's personal relationships. That's almost diagnostic of them. You know, when people say, well, I'll just give an example in my research. I researched in for my PhD work. I took two different supposedly quote left-wing groups and compared them and one was I knew was a cult the Newman tendency based in New York and then I wanted to compare it to a non-cult and I chose the Green Party in the U.S. and what 
you could predict, and which indeed was the case, that in the Newman tendency, people's personal relationships were controlled. In the Green Party, no one controls each other's relationships in the Green Party. A lot of other things happen, but they don't tell you who to marry or who to not marry or when and where to, you know, to have children. But in a cult or in a totalist system, they do. And this is highly predictable. There are many other things that are predictable as well, but that one I think is quite central. And again, as we'll see as we talk further, I'll explain why that one's central. So they are... You know, there's debate in the field where some people talk about a continuum of influence. And, you know, scholars I really respect speak in this way. I tend to look at it a bit differently. I look at it as actually no. Well, there are certainly continuums of social influence, but a cult is a cult. A totalist system is a totalist system. They're very particular. They look different than open systems. These are essentially closed systems, and they look very different from open systems, and we can define that. So that was a lot my goal in the book, was to try to really delineate what this system was, what its mechanisms were, and how we can define it, which is very important, I think, long-term for our our well-being as as human beings. So within this closed social system of either a cult or a totalitarian government, how do we conceptualize and thinking about attachment, right? So if this is indeed, it's closed, it's interfering with personal relationships, how do we think about attachment between individuals and then from individuals to the leadership? So I have to back up a bit. Well, let me, the order of describing these things is always interesting to me. Basically, in a totalist system, the leader or the group as proxy for the leader, because it's not always, in fact, generally, it's not a direct follower to leader thing. It's not, you know, in a small cult, it might be, but in larger cult, you have an organization that has to deliver the voice of the leader, so to speak. So the primary attachment of a follower gets manipulated to become an attachment to the group. That's the essential thing that's happening. And that is a very dangerous attachment, which I shall explain. So in order to make the primary attachment that to the leader or group, you have to then diminish and in fact weaken and utterly change people's normal, you know, important attachment relationships to their spouses or their other significant others or their parents or their children or their very close friends. All of those relationships have to be made not just secondary, but kind of not attachments. And it's a fascinating thing and one that I haven't fully explored, and I hope other people do in the future, what happens to people's normal relationships in a cult, because they they become neither attachment relationships nor just kind of work or affiliative relationships. There's some strange hybrid that develops where you are really not supposed to care that much about your fellow cult member 
or your fellow, you know, totalitarian state member, you're, you only care about them or you're only supposed to care about them in as much as it promotes the group or the leader. So this is where we see these strange behaviors of people, you know, cutting off their families, of people, you know, these awful stories about North Korea, of children turning in their parents. I think we saw that in Cambodia as well during Pol Pot's regime and certainly in Hitler's regime and Stalin's for that matter. You know, we see family relationships get really turned inside out where loyalty to the leader is trumps that of any kind of loyalty to the family so so the all the energy has and the loyalty has to go toward the leader and that's a very dangerous situation and certainly very unhealthy because that relationship is really driven by fear whereas a healthy attachment should really be driven by safety and that's the kind of key contradiction in the attachment relationship. So I guess I can go into explaining that a little bit. And to do that, I'll back up into a brief explanation of attachment theory, which is needed to understand this. So John Bowlby was a British psychiatrist and child psychiatrist. And his work is absolutely amazing and really worth worth a read. And he was very much influenced by early animal studies of animal behavior. And anyway, to cut a long story short, he came up with this concept backed up by a lot of research that people and need to have attachment relationships for the purpose of protection. And that is an evolutionarily driven, selected in quality. So babies needed to attach to their parents to be protected. And if they didn't attach to their parents, and conversely, if the parent didn't attach to the child, that baby wasn't likely to survive. So those who stayed in close proximity with the parent and where the parent responded to the child's signals, they survived. And so we kind of evolved with this need for attachment to safe others who would be there to protect us in times of threat or stress. So it's this, his theory started with children and developed a huge body of research, <coughs> excuse me, and theory that came out of that over the last, I suppose, 50 years now. And this also developed into the field of adult attachment. So that not a, it's not only parents and children attaching to each other, but also as adults, we both carry those attachments that we had as children internally, and we also develop attachments to our close others as adults. So what happens, and this is very much a kind of biological or physiological view, is that if, so I'll just talk about the parent and child, because that's kind of the easiest way uh, to conceptualize it, but it's important to remember this can happen in adult relationships as well. So normally you have a parent and child. The child may experience some kind of stress. They may be hungry. They may be tired. 
they may be afraid of the dark, they may fall down, whatever. And they will then engage in attachment behaviors. They might cry, they might seek out the parent, they might ask for help. And in a healthy attachment, the parent will respond and will comfort them. Now, what's happening there biologically is the stress of the child is, is increasing its level of stress hormones, of cortisols. When they go to the parent and the parent comforts them, that's increasing their what are called endogenous opioids. So those are the calming you know, chemicals that go through our body when we feel comforted. And as the endogenous opioids increase, our cortisols decrease. So we feel comforted, we feel less stressed. And then at a certain point, we've had enough comfort. And we can say then that our attachment behaviors have been terminated. We don't need to keep asking. We've had an adequate amount of comfort. And now we want to go back out and explore our environment. Well, the child wants to go back out and explore its environment and get some more cortisols going because some cortisols are exciting and that's a good thing. But when they've had enough and when the cortisols get overwhelming, they go back and seek the comfort again. So you have this kind of nice rubber band effect in a healthy attachment of balancing excitement with your cortisol increase, but also when that gets too high and is stressful, going back for the comforting opioids from the caring parent. And that's all well and good. And that operates as a nice homeostatic system. And there are various versions of that that are more or less optimal, well, less optimal, but are manageable, which I won't go into, but are called the, there's three organized forms of attachment. But there's a very problematic form, which is called disorganized attachment, which is when the parent is also the source of stress. So instead of the, of being, a, so they, The parent is both the comforter, or at least the perceived comforter, and they're the source of the cortisol increase by being either frightening or frightened. So this creates a terrible paradox for the child seeking comfort, because instead of getting comfort, they're actually approaching more stress. So their cortisols keep going up. And they keep going to the parent to try to get comfort. And it creates this positive feedback loop. So I hope this is, <laughs> this is, it's always a little difficult to explain this part, but it's really important to, because I think this is quite central. So you get this feedback loop of approaching the source of stress for comfort, which is obviously not going to happen. And we call that, if you have, well, let me just back up. If you had another potential attachment figure, that would be okay. You would just say, well, I can't go to that parent. They're too scary. I'll go to the other one or I'll go to Auntie Betty over there. You would have a way out. But if you're isolated in that relationship, you have, that's the only one that is the potential source of comfort. And so you keep going back and back and back. So that creates a a bond, it creates this disorganized bond, or you can also call it a trauma bond, which is sometimes easier for people to conceptualize. So 
we can imagine that as also happening with adults. So the, again, the easiest way I find to communicate this is to talk about controlling uh, relationships of controlling domestic violence, where you know that's something we've been quite familiar with now. The boyfriend, it's not always gender uh, based like that, but for simplicity, I'll talk about that. You know, the, the boyfriend starts out by wooing and being nice and love bombing. And later down the road, they get scary. And but they've isolated the the woman and she has no no way out. And people find it difficult to understand why she doesn't leave. But if she's been isolated, she's in that loop of seeing the boyfriend having set himself up as the only, quote, safe space but as at the same time, the source of fear. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. And in my book, I'm basically trying to say that I think cults operate in exactly the same way, just on a larger scale and with a structure, an organizational structure and an organizational ideology to support that dynamic. So the leader sets themselves and the group up as the perceived safe space. You know, I am the savior. I'm going to, I'm the only one who knows, you know, what's going on in the world and how to get us out of this mess. And if you follow me, everything will be all right. At the same time, once you get, once the follower gets in a little bit into the system and they start getting isolated you know, don't hang out with your old friends. They don't really understand. Oh, your family doesn't really understand. They're going to hold you back or whatever it might be. There's many forms. And in my book, I try to give many, many examples of how these things happen. You know, sometimes it may happen as in the case with child soldiers, you know, they're kidnapped. It, you may not have to say these things. They may just be physically dragged out of their communities. So, but, you know, you get gradually or quickly isolated. The group is the only safe place. The leader is the only one who's got the answers to all of life's questions. And then, so it's a process of isolating people, engulfing them in the system, and then arousing these chronic levels of fear, which are going to cause the follower to sort of, if they've been successfully isolated, cling or seek the group for that protection. So that is the essential dynamic that's happening. You know, arouse this chronic stress in people, which again has of many ways that can be done. You can make them frightened of the apocalypse. You can make them worried about their own sins, their own, you know, original or other sins. You can sleep deprive them, which is obviously very stressful. You can warn them about Bill Gates and his microchips. You can tell them the Jews are coming or the immigrants are coming. You know, there's a, each cult has its own discourse about what the threats are. Though they all of them tend to include your own badness in yourself as being part of that threat so to kind of reiterate you have isolation you have engulfment in the system so you become 
the the group becomes all encompassing takes up all your time and all your energy and then you have this chronic arousal of fear and you and the group sets itself up as this perceived safe place so each so the fear causes you to keep coming back to the group and there's you get that same positive feedback loop now the there's two things that result from that. One is, as I hope has become plain, that positive feedback loop keeps a person emotionally locked into that relationship because they keep, they, they're biologically, I want you to think about this as a physiological process. The cortisols are high. We need to try to bring them down. We keep going to what we think is the place that's going to bring them down but it doesn't, but we have nowhere else to go because we've been isolated. So you're locked into that cycle. So that's kind of the emotional bond that keeps you in proximity to the group. However, importantly, because that isn't actually solving the problem because you're keeping on going towards the fear, that creates a state of what I call chronic relational trauma. It's a trauma state because you have these high levels of stress that don't go away, right? I mean, we're all going to be traumatized by this pandemic, right? We've all had a year of, you know, incredibly high stress and worry. So, you know, we can think of that as chronic trauma, but in the group, it's the group creating it. It's not a natural scary process as the pandemic is. So you have this bonding to the group that's the emotional element but because it keeps you in a chronic trauma state because you keep going towards the fear and the source of the trauma that creates what in attachment theory we call fright without solution which is just another way of saying trauma so when you're traumatized and there's a lot of good work done by alan shaw on the effect on the brain of being in a traumatized state and essentially what happens is we, because we can't, we can neither flee nor fight, which is the normal response to fear, because we're locked, locked into the system, we freeze. And the freezing is happening at a, in our cognition, in our brains. It's a freezing of our cognitive abilities. And Alan Shaw has work shows that there's this, piece in the brain the orbital frontal cortex that is sort of inactivated in trauma i think there's also other interesting pieces in the brain and i'm not a neuroscientist i have no training in this but the the reading i've done suggests that there's other regions near the orbital frontal cortex the dorsolateral cortex and broca's region and these are all close together these regions and they all tend to be disactivated, deactivated in trauma. And these are the parts of the brain that tend to link our, I hope there's not too many neuroscientists listening to this because they'll be aghast, but never mind. They are, they are the sort of linkage between the feeling parts of our brain, the emotion processing parts, and the higher order thinking that says, you know, that tries to make meaning that is language based, that's more the left brain, 
that does judicious reasoning about how we should act to look after ourselves. Those bits are sort of deactivated in trauma because you, you have no way out. You can't activate them because there is no solution to your fright. And that is what we call dissociation. So the link between our, the normal flow between our left and right brains, between our feeling states and our ability to think about our feelings and if needed to act on our feelings, that is interrupted by trauma. So we, the most simple way I try to talk about this is dissociation is the inability to think about our feelings in that particular moment or in that particular frightening relationship. So you may be able to think perfectly well about other things, but you can't think about the totalistic frightening relationship. So you have this emotional bond that the positive feedback loop creates, and that creates this trauma state, which creates dissociation, which means we can't think about what's happening in order to protect ourselves. And into that kind of void, that sort of cognitive void uh, or split between our emotional and cognitive processing, the totalist system can now in kind of interject into our thinking its own narrative about what we are feeling. And once it can do that, it has a lot of power over you because it can now introduce what is always true of the ideology in these groups, which is that it's fiction. It's not a reflection of reality. It's not a reflection of what the follower is actually experiencing. It's a totally fictional narrative. And they can now tell you to do things that will may benefit the group and very likely not uh, be totally against the follower's own survival interests. I realize I'm not giving a lot of examples. I don't know if that's um, a problem, but, but, you know, it's an example, one example of a fictional narrative, you know, if we look at the imagery, both from Mao's China and North Korea, you know, these wonderful posters of, you know, the happy children with the chickens and the, the benign leader with the children on their knee and the lush fields full of, you know, fruits and vegetables. This is a fiction, you know, but this is what people have to accept is real, even while in their own actual reality, they may be starving. So yeah, we see, we well, and we've, I think QAnon is a perfect example of this fiction, you know, and the COVID denial, you know, here are all these people, you know, terrible, terrible, hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world dying. And we have this complete fiction created about it. So, you know, it's very, very dangerous once you can fictionalize people's reality. So anyway, that was, <laughs> I, I hope some of that made some sense. No, it, it really did. What I find kind of interesting and this debate comes on Twitter, like every now and then it just comes in waves. But the idea of profiling or having a sort of stereotypical person as a cult member, right? And I think the argument becomes, at least on Twitter, is that more education 
equals more would you know a person would become more resilient to sort of cult you know becoming a cult member or becoming involved in a totalist system but then as a researcher like i started going through the 16 data you know so the project on extremism and it just it was just it just made my eyeballs pop out because there's lawyers you know uh vice president of an insurance company doctors there was people you would you would say that are educated members of society they have advanced degrees they are leaders in their community respective communities yet here they are very much buying into the qanon ideology so for me that the question then becomes is there a profile or can there be a profile you know is there is there like a stereotypical cult member or is there is it just you know any person can potentially you know be involved in a a cult or a totalist system how does you know talk about that a bit for us well you know there's been for decades researchers trying to find this very evasive profile and i think you know john horgan who i think you had on your show recently you know said it well where he said we've got to stop asking you know why people get involved which kind of leads to the profiling approach to how which is exactly what i would say you know it's the mechanisms we need to look at and i would turn it also around and say we can't profile individual psych people uh, and their psychologies which has like I said for decades there have been studies trying to do that and they're not coming up with much what we can profile are the organizations and the leaders that we can profile you know they have the like I said these very predictable attributes and you know once you know what they are you know you can spot them you know I can smell a cult from you know, three miles away. And I'm sure, you know, other people in my field can because we know what they look like. So I think that's really where the attention needs to go. And I think it's a great waste of time, this trying to profile individuals. You know, what we can, there are certain things we can say, you know, people have situational vulnerabilities. You know, we, we I think there is some evidence of that, which makes total sense you know, especially if you look at the attachment perspective, you know, if someone's moved away to go to university in another city, and they're not around their family and friends anymore, they may be looking for new involvements in a perfectly normal and healthy way. And given the wrong kind of luck, that new involvement might be a cult, which they're not going to know at the beginning, because it they cults don't approach you and say we're a horrible cult that's going to control your life they approach you saying hey you know come you know come and come to our whatever come to a party come to our yoga studio come to our whatever it might be so people who are in between important affiliations or attachments or going to a new job you know they're a bit more open to something new in their network right so that gives a little hope for the for the cult recruiter So we do see some situational vulnerabilities. There's, of course, going to be other vulnerabilities, you know, like in a pandemic or like in, you know, a period of, you know, any kind of upheaval in the world. People will want some answers or want to get politically active or whatever. 
so again, some of those people are going to find perfectly benign things to get involved with, and some are going to have the bad luck to run into a cult. In terms of the education, education per se is not protective, as you've just pointed out. That's because our education does not include education about the methods and mechanics of totalist recruitment and indoctrination. We don't teach this, even though it has been quite, yeah, we've got quite a history of research, although much of that research, like I was saying with Arendt, kind of got sort of forgotten about for many years. But, you know, following World War II, there was a lot of research that happened to try to understand what happened in Hitler's Germany. You know, that didn't go unnoticed, what happened in Hitler's Germany. And many, many, you know, famous psychologists, and I'm sure lots of not famous ones, did really important research. You know, people like Milgram and Solomon Ash uh, and Sheriff. And, you know, these are the parts of classic social psychology that are super important. And followed by other researchers like Lifton and so forth from, from the um, 50s. And then followed by others standing on their shoulders, Philip Zimbardo and his famous Stanford prison experiment and Laughlin and Laughlin when their marvelous study of the Moonies. And now the generation that I sort of belong to of people who themselves had been in cults and then came out and had to figure out what happened and went on to get advanced degrees and do research. You know, myself and Yanya Lalich and Stephen Hassan and various other people. And I'm happy to say there's yet another generation of those people born and raised in these groups. They didn't join them. They weren't, how are you going to profile them? They weren't anybody. They were just had the bad luck to be born into one of these groups, right? They're now finding their voice coming out and starting also to get advanced degrees and to publish their experiences and also research on their generation. So there's actually you know, 70 years of research that's been done that's so rich and interesting, especially when you try to join it, as I have, to other disciplines like Hannah Arendt and John Bowlby and so forth, and you try to broaden it out a bit. I mean, that's the kind of complicated graduate level view, but we're not even teaching the simple stuff in schools. So, you know, this kind of gets more to, I think, one of your later questions about what do we do about it? And I think the key thing we have to do about this is start educating, starting in the universities, because we have to train our teachers so they can teach the kids. We have to bring all this marvelous research and knowledge and, and be disseminating it in universities. And I can say from my own experience, you know, even though I got a very late start in in my academic career, largely because I had a lot of years in a cult, you know, once I did start working in that field, the only institutions that let me teach what I, my specialism was, thank you, University of Minnesota, where I did my graduate work, let me teach there in this specific topic. And then in London, a very un you know wonderful but not glamorous community adult education institution but other universities have not taken this up 
and t let me tell you, I've offered it to them. And I, that's not you know, just me, but there, it's this is a field of scholarship that has been marginalized for a long time. And I think we're seeing now what with Trump and the general, you know, upsurge in right-wing extremism and that we have to start teaching this stuff. And, I, you know, there is now, of course, a big field of terrorism studies, but I think the... Who, and we are approaching each other. There is some convergence happening right now. For example, I'm on your podcast. That's an example of that convergence. And myself and others have worked for some years with the EU's Radicalization Awareness Network because we're seeing more that these mechanisms that those of us in the cult field understand, these mechanisms of recruitment and indoctrination, in large part what happens in these extremist terrorist groups. Not always, there are some exceptions, but a lot of it looks the same. So what we do know is that knowledge of the knowledge, pre-existing knowledge is protective. If you know what these things look like, you can spot them and you can, you know, unless you've been kidnapped, you know, find your way out of them. And even, so to speak, if you've been kidnapped, and there's, Lifton talks about this and some others, and I'm forgetting the name. Yeah, I, anyway, some work's been done on prisoners of war, and those who knew what kind of mechanisms would be used to interrogate them and try to make them submit, you know, psychologically to the system were able to protect themselves because they knew what was coming. So, you know, we can teach this stuff. I teach it, you know, we can teach children. I taught my children what to look out for, but we're at a very, very early stage and we've had to fight through a lot of obstacles and are still fighting through a lot of obstacles to get this knowledge out really in a kind of public health way to, to the public. And this is urgent. I think we've seen that. The U.S. has looked that, had that very close up in a very frightening way. And, of course, we know that the threat has not gone away. So it's urgent that we start bringing this into the universities and teaching this material to people. And way beyond, I mean, I just talk about the attachment element, and I try to connect a lot of things to that, but there are other prisms through which one can look at this. You know, there's many other influence pressures and frameworks where we're, we're all complementary to each other, but, you know, we have slightly different angles. So in short, I think resilience is created by prior knowledge of what totalism looks like and what methods they're going to use particularly, and if I always say, if I have one warning to give anyone, it's any relationship where they're trying to isolate you from your prior relationships, that's a danger sign. And run, run the other way as fast as you can. You know, it's, we can teach this stuff, but we don't. Instead of looking for the, the needy, pathetic victim profile, you know, person and what are you going to do if you did psychologically profile them what if you what are you going to do if you did find them you know it doesn't even work logically if you see what I mean you know you're gonna I don't know quarantine them 
you know, it just doesn't work like that. So that's what I have to say about that. No, that's really interesting. And it kind of brings me to this question of how do we understand the viewpoint of somebody who is, has been, or is still in a caught in a cult or a totalist system? I think, again, it goes back to Twitter, but like, in the media in some ways of how people are reacting to QAnon and how they reacted to uh, Scientology and other cults. But it was, it was just kind of fascinating to me. Like it was, especially with QAnon, there's always this tone of mocking and sort of belittling people who have, who have been pulled into this belief system and, for me, like a, as a somebody involved in security, that was just like, that's, that's not useful, but obviously I'm not an expert in that space, in this space. So from your perspective, how do we begin to understand somebody's viewpoint? How do we begin to, you know, not, not necessarily pull them out at that stage, but just a, from a simple point of understanding and empathy, you know, how, where, where does that starting point it's it's very difficult and i mean i find i find it very difficult myself personally you know it's not something i'm good at i'm good at i tend to get very angry angry you know as a lot of us do so i'm not saying i i practice what i preach but you know i think first of all we have to bit make a distinction between the people at the very top and the followers because, you know, some people and the people at the very top, particularly the leader, you know, are psychopaths and really dangerous, damaging people. And those, you know, we're not going to have empathy for, are we? You know, they just need to be sanctioned in some way. But as we know, there's loads of other people who get recruited who may be perfectly decent, nice people or just, you know, normal or normally flawed people. And I think the best way to try to grasp this is Lifton's concept of doubling or Bowlby's concept of segregated systems. And I think they're probably both trying to say the same thing. And I, again, personally have experienced this. So when you're in one of these systems you and I'm talking about people who joined not those born or raised in them that's a more complicated issue but if you joined as an adult you have your prior self with all its you know complexities and your prior moral sense and values and you get recruited and you then get indoctrinated and then you've now a cult person. But the cult person sort of sits, I think of it as sitting on top of, you know, if you kind of look at a picture of the brain and the, the pre-cult self is sort of squashed underneath this new cult self that's been introduced through that dissociative window that I talked about earlier. So you now have the cult self spouting this nonsense and doing these things that seem crazy. But underneath that is the, the pre-cult self. And both of those are existing together. It's just that the cult self is dominant and kind of suppressing 
the your so to speak real self or your pre-existing self but there is a tension between those and it's different in different people you know a true believer will have less tension than a more rebellious questioning cult member but both those selves are operating it's just the one can't have a voice it's its voice is suppressed but it is still experiencing real things so i'll give as an i'll use myself as an example you know in the group i was exhausted all the time because they worked us you know 18 20 hours a day so my my physical self felt exhausted and unhappy and by the way cults are mostly very boring which people don't always understand at the beginning there's excitement as you get caught into the whole dynamic of you know we're going to change the world or whatever it is so i expect a lot of the qanon people have been feeling a lot of that excitement and exhilaration but once you get into the daily grind which is what the cult wants you for <laughs> then it just starts to be exhausting and boring so you're feeling that so to speak in your body but the cult narrative in sort of the top of your mind so to speak is saying oh no we're working for the cause and we're going to make it all better and everything's great and the, i'm only feeling tired because you know i'm not devoted enough or you know i'm weak you know there's this whole narrative that goes on so in terms that's the reality <laughs> you know i think of most cult members and it's the other reality is it's they've been made to feel that the outside world is frightening and a threat so you as the outside world present a threat to them so that's why it is important to try not to prove that you're a threat to them by being mocking or rejecting or angry and what if these are people who we were previously close to it's really important to try to keep a hand out the cult wants you not to be connected you know the cult wants you to be isolated so it's actually going it's an act of resistance by the non cult world to keep a hand out to people and not reject them even though they're making you really annoyed and angry and but the way to do that is not by arguing the ideological points but by trying to kind of get under that to the person so that may be you know remember when we used to you know have those you know great holidays together or you know remember that christmas we had so much fun or that concert we went to or even you know anything mundane you know it could be you know grandma's cheesecake you know <laughs> you know you're trying to reach to that part that's under the ideology if that makes sense it's difficult it's not something i personally am very good at i have to admit the other thing is kindness and i i can't remember if this in your podcast but this i attended a fascinating radicalization awareness network meeting a couple of years ago talking about rehabilitation and reintegration in the in the prison system and there was a wonderful speaker a woman who ran a prison system i can't uh, i can't quite remember where maybe in the netherlands and she was talking about how they had had to 
And th this was dealing with violent extremists who were in the system. And she was talking about how the training that they had given all the workers in the prison from the, you know, catering staff to the probation officers to the, the, the prison officers and everyone, their main thing was to try to treat these violent extremists with kindness. Now, that really fits with the attachment analysis, because what we want to try to do is give an alternate safe place for people, because in the totalist system, it has made itself appear to be the only safe place for people. But if you can give them another safe place, that gives them a pathway out. Whereas if you're horrible and angry and cross and punitive, as by the way, the British system is in treating violent extremists, very self-defeating, I have to say. It doesn't mean you let them off the hook. They may still have to serve time. You know, it's, it's not, I, I don't want to make this too simplistic, but you can also be kind whilst holding people accountable for actions they've done. And that alternate safe space gives them a potential pathway out where they can then regain their ability. If they're out of that system of trauma, they can start resolving that dissociation that is creating that doubling effect and start actually reviewing what happened to them with their own narrative, not with the cult narrative. And that sort of takes us into the recovery element of this once people do get out, which is that process of creating what we call in attachment theory, a coherent narrative, not this fictional narrative of what happened, but oh, this is what actually happened to me. You know, I went to church. Look, I was looking for a new church and slowly that church started engulfing me. And then it turned out that church actually was connected to a militia. And even though I don't like guns, I got, this didn't happen to me. I'm just giving, <laughs> giving a uh, fictional example. You know, I got pulled into this kind of militia organization. Then we started saying that all the blacks and all the Jews were evil. Well, you have to go back through that and unpick it and what were all the pressures and what was going on at each stage so that you can understand how you are manipulated. And you don't just do this because randomly, you do it because being in that group was damaging to you. It's not helpful to most people, unless they're in the leadership, to be in these groups their lives are being destroyed. So, you know, that's where we get to also have some empathy for people, right? Because these groups are fundamentally exploitative of followers, hugely exploitative. And it's the followers who end up paying and the leaders, unfortunately, often get off scot-free. So it wasn't actually in the followers' interest. They've given their money. They may have given up their families. They may give up their lives. They may give up their freedom. You know, there's a high cost to being in these groups. So trying to understand, talk to the part of them that is not colonized by the totalistic narrative being kind to provide an alternate safe space. And then after people come out, helping them in a 
to tell their story and being a non-judgmental listener. You know, the worst thing when people come out of these groups is to have a listener who whose mouth drops open and who says things like, oh, that would never happen to me. And oh my God, that was so terrible. Yeah, this really doesn't help in recovery. You have to have a non-judgmental listener who can be a witness to what in fact is a traumatic experience for the follower. So I guess my, my next question is, especially with QAnon, with what we saw on one six has kind of been seen as an ideological collapse. The the myth and the sort of predictions of Q have not come to 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 pass. Joe Biden has become president, et cetera, et cetera. But what what happens to cults when you have that ideological I mean, I don't want to describe it as ideological collapse, but when reality is so much in in distinction to that ideology, you know, how do, you know, how do cults kind of adapt and deal with shifting reality to the point where it just, you know, kind of negates their core ideas and core ideologies, you know, how do, you know, how do cults adapt, I guess, would be yeah. the most basic sort of interpretation of this question well i think with the QAnon thing it's interesting because also i mean i don't know if it's changed in the last week or two but you know q went silent right has have they come back yet i haven't really kept up with that so you have a couple different things going on because you had both the yeah the failure of the prophecy and of course there's the famous book um when prophecy fails by festinger which talks about cognitive dissonance and we kind of know people either, you know, there's a couple pathways for people when these prophecies fail. And one is, you know, probably a good chunk of people will leave, will find that as a cognitive pathway out, but other people will double down. And I think we're seeing that with QAnon. But I, but it's, yeah, do you know, has QAnon still kept quiet as far as i know q hasn't he hasn't they haven't dropped anything so i think it's been so that's a different problem right that's not a failed prophecy that's like the leader's gone awol whether the leader whoever that is which is of course the what's interesting with QAnon, but you know whether they come back or not is I think going to be important. Obviously they haven't disappeared. They're somewhere, whoever they are. You know, cults when they lose their leader often do fall apart unless there's another leader ready to step into the breach. Like Scientology, you know, when L. Ron Hubbard died, he had groomed David Miscavige to take his place who had those charismatic and authoritarian qualities. He was He was therefore qualified to carry on as cult leader. But if there isn't such a person, often cults do collapse because whatever, the leader may go on to other things or they may be dead or they may be in prison. In this case, I think, yeah, you're going to have a, my feeling is you're going to have a combination of a bunch of people either quickly or gradually pulling away from it and just going back to their lives. And you're going to have doubling down and you know all that feeding into all these various militia groups you know what everyone's frightened of right now right is you know going going in different directions finding other things to be involved with 
that equally, if not more damaging. So I, I, that's kind of how I imagine it's going to go. You know, we know, I mean, take the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you know, you're asking about cults, you know, they're the classic example of the failed prophecy where they keep moving the date of Armageddon out because, you know, it doesn't arrive. So then they come up with a new date. And, you know, some people do leave the Jehovah's Witnesses because they discover that all these dates keep shifting. And so they cognitively go, this just doesn't make sense. Others, you know, there's rationales for it or, you know, it, oh, well, there was a mistake. Well, we didn't calculate. You can't remember what the will stay. But often people stay because they haven't been born into it or their families there. So, you know, you have to look again at the whole system and what's how what's you don't just walk away from a cult you know it's a very it's a very frightening thing to leave a a cult you know if you've only been in a short while it's easier if you've been in a longer while it's an extremely difficult thing to do so it's not just an ideological shift you you know you're potentially leaving you know, your housing, your job, your family, you've got to recalibrate your whole way of thinking. It, it's a its a traumatic process, in fact, leaving a cult and walk, you know, so I think we think of the QAnon thing as being, oh, someone just, you know, change their mind and go back to life. But, you know, they may have a lot of grief, but maybe they've put two years worth of all their resources into this. Maybe they feel ashamed. Shame is a huge thing for people coming out of cults. Shame they've been hoodwinked. Shame of what they may have done to their families. All kinds of things. And then people feel a lot of grief and anger at being hoodwinked. But in a way, most importantly, you feel frightened when you're leaving an occult because you've been told that everything else is scary. And you've bought into that. And to untangle that is a non-trivial process. It's really difficult. Hence the importance of people being kind to you and helping you feel there is safety outside because you have been made to feel everybody's a threat, a really a deadly threat. And it's very difficult getting through that. Even if you can't, you know, I call that fear of existential fear because you can't always name it. It's almost like that physiological heightening of the cortisols, that unresolved chronic stress for however long you've been in. It's just in your body that you just feel constantly stressed and anxious. And you may not even be able to say why. It's just a feeling of fear. And so to get out of it, you know, just takes time and calmness and safety and t- yeah, and time. So it, it's uh, it's difficult. Yeah. Interesting. So before we get to how do we you know take people, bring them out of cults, and, and really dig on that, I had a question about how what do you see as the internet and the role of social media in producing cults and totalist systems? When I was reading through your book something caught my eye, which was in every case study and case example, you have a lot. So you're pulling from a lot of case studies, MEK, the 
Scientology, uh, Lifton's work on North Korea and China. And I just, I kept on thinking, these are all very physical, right? Mm -hmm. Do you, you know, there's people bringing, being brought into these networks are doing so physically. There's physical, there's a person actually doing the recruiting. There's uh, the networks are all in real life, so to speak. But when I started thinking about Q and I started thinking about, okay, you, you don't know the identity of Q. You do know the identity of Trump. He, you know, is very much uh, a central part of the ideology. And it, it just, it was just so weird, like trying to describe Q. It's not physical, but it definitely has all these other elements, you know, so, you know, isolation, you know, there's the structure of sort of, you know, there's Q and then there's the followers. But I, I, I was kind of trying to make sense of, you know, as a research idea of how the internet and how social media kind of plays in the creation and maintenance of cults and totalist systems. And, and I'm still trying to figure it out too, by the way. And I don't fully understand it. And there are things about Q I don't fully understand. So, you know, it's always good to have new things to research, right? And hopefully, you know, other people than me will will be looking at that. I'm sure they are. So I certainly don't have, you know, all the answers to to this. However, what I think, I mean, and just to say as a side note, you know, I didn't know the identity of my leader and we were a small cult, but we were so secret. You know, I only knew, you know, I don't know, maybe 15 people in the group and I certainly didn't know who the leader was. So again, you don't necessarily need to know the leader. That's what the structure and the ideology are there for, right? They kind of carry the, do the work of the leader who, he, the leader has to do the work at the top with the lieutenants, right? So you don't need this physical connection to the leader is really all I'm saying there. And as you say, Trump was the kind of, I don't know what you call him, the he was both the symbol and to an extent the leader. It's complicated and I don't understand it all. But in terms of social media and the internet, it seems to me that, you know, it's a communications medium, <clears throat> And it is a very fast one and far reaching. So it accelerates things in all our lives, right? Not just with cults, everything in our lives is accelerated by the internet. So, but, I, but I'm not sure that it fundamentally changes things. I'm per perfectly have to be proven wrong because, you know, it's new. And it, so, you know, we see through the internet, these same charismatic and authoritarian leaders, even if we maybe don't know who they are, we see these same, as you said, ideologies, these fictional all or nothing ideologies. We see the echo chambers, the closed echo chambers. A lot of these groups will, you know, use the internet at the same time as telling you not to Google them on the internet, which is an interesting contradiction. <laughs> you know and not to believe or not to believe other accounts i mean you see a lot of cults now in their frequently asked questions say are we a cult no this is why we're not a cult and i always say anyone who says that they must be a cult because they're only saying that because there's something else on the internet that's you know somebody's some ex-member has written a, something uh, exposing them but it still is relationships we're still i 
you know, this is again where research is needed. You know, we get a lot of our information from those we have a connection to. You know, I think it's not the norm for people just to randomly go on the internet and follow this stuff. It's often, you know, that's why the power of social media, right? It's social because it's people we're connected to. So it may be, you know, a family member posts a hashtag save the children thing or a friend of yours. And you start going down the hashtags save the children rabbit hole, which I've seen on my Facebook page, you know, people who I had collegial good relationships with suddenly, you know, I'm having to say to them, don't you know, that's a QAnon trope, you know, or Alternately, they might start talking about, you know, globalists and this and that. And I have to go and say, don't you know, that's an anti-Semitic trope. You know, people don't know. Right. But their friends are posting something. They go down. They go, oh, that looks good. Or, you know, I care about the children and down the rabbit hole they go. But it's coming from our connections, mostly because it's our connections that influence us. When I say connections, I mean, our friends and family, you know that's that's how we validate our reality is by you know what do the people around us think it's just the face of the internet makes that so much more powerful and quicker somehow also i think once you start getting into the more serious stuff like you know violent extremist groups you are going to have a phase of in real life even if it's mediated by the internet i mean like you and i are now having yes it's mediated by the internet but it's also in real life right it's like in the olden days we'd be talking on the telephone you know we're two human real human beings having a real conversation we're not anime creatures right it's real life so we're now having a real connection well recruitment is going to happen in the same way at a certain point you know, and I think this is well known in extremism scholarship, you know, somebody on a web page is going to be approached by a recruiter and they recruit by developing a personal and trusting relationship with someone, which they have to do if they're going to get them involved in violent extremism because it's a high risk activity, obviously. So I think you still get eventually that personal connection at least that's what i think but there's a lot of open questions there so it's it's fascinating and important to understand on the other hand what the internet and social media give us is a huge opportunity for exposing these groups and for educating people and that's where you know a lot of people now posting their stories of so, you know, this little charity that I work with, the Family Survival Trust, you know, we have an online support group now that gets people from different countries. You know, it also gives the resistance, so to speak. We also have access to this community world. And that has helped a lot of people get out of groups, particularly these pe- the young people who are born and brought up in these groups who go and, you know, when they get dissatisfied, start Googling. and discover that the group they were born into is a cult and, you know, find a support group, not necessarily ours, but the one of the many that are out there and find their way out. So it sort of works both ways, I think. But I think, unfortunately, we're not, (sighs) the education authorities are not using it well enough 
for prevention. And I think too much prevention has been focused on too late in the cycle. So especially in the UK, the prevent work, I always say shouldn't be called prevent, it should be called catch, because they're sort of looking for, quote, the student who's got the bomb in their pocket. And that's too late. We've got to reach people before the recruiter reaches them, not after. And a lot of prevent work is fo focused on after a person's been started down the recruitment pathway. And it's re that's really hard, getting someone out of something. It's a lot easier to educate them before about why those groups are dangerous and why they will be dangerous to that to the person who gets involved and will not be actually doing what the group says it's going to be doing <laughs> because that's a fictional account. It's going to actually be serving the needs of the leader. So I think the internet can be powerful for that as well, but we need to up our game. I mean, to sort of maybe expand on your point uh, about the internet, about the sort of negative parts of it, I always, I've always found it, especially social media, as it, it does kind of prone, prone people to being isolated within their own bubble, like an echo chamber is the popular term. But it, sent, it, it just feels like, you know, it, it's very isolating and it's very reality warping. My personal experience on Twitter is that I had to, early on, I got stuck in very much the same group of people. You know, I would just only chat with the same group of people. And it, it just became, my own viewpoint of the world became very aligned with theirs. And I had to, at least on Twitter, like put in the energy to find people who are, who thought about issues differently. And it required a sort of not only energy on my part, but a sort of knowledge of how the medium works, which I, I imagine most people don't want to, you know, take the time to do that. But, you know, it just, it's social media kind of blows my mind, you know, because it's, to your point, it's not only, you're not only connecting with people, but that connection itself is algorithmically sort of designed to seal you in a particular echo chamber or ideological network. So I think with like Facebook, with cues spread on Facebook, it was very much, you'd get one person saying like, save the children or sort of creating a, a cue trope. And then you would click and look at it that. And then suddenly, you know, you're getting, you know, two, three, four, five, you just keep getting more and more suggestions until you're just pulled into this network unwittingly. And then suddenly you're, you're you know, the person, not you, but the person is sort of echoing and reproducing that content. But I mean, it's just, it just, the idea of, the idea of social media and cults kind of just blows my mind. <laughs> um, it's just, it's wild. <laughs> um, well, again, that's why we need, I mean, I think there's the whole media literacy education, which is important. But again, I think without the education about cultic recruitment, it's not as strong. I mean, what you're saying is entirely true. And I always laugh because I get so much on my Facebook of different cults, you know, trying to recruit me because, you know, I work in that field. So the algorithm sends all the cults to me. And I'm the last person they want, you know, that is going to be recruited. So it's sort of comical and annoying because I'm constantly being bombarded with this cult nonsense. But, you know, so you have to equip people to be able to recognize it somehow, which 
I think is doable. I don't think it's an impossible task. I just think we haven't really taken it seriously so far. But yeah, I think the internet throws up a lot of problems that are, again, fascinating and interesting. And I certainly don't claim to have the answer to all of them or any of them, possibly. But I, I go back to, you know, you can go down a rabbit hole. And then if you've been taught, oh, you know, don't let something isolate and engulf you, keep a hold of your other things in life, that's going to give you a starting point to say, maybe this rabbit hole isn't the best one for me to go down. But if you haven't had that education, you've got, you're ill-equipped, you know, you're, you're, yeah. Switch footing to the idea of bringing people out of cults. And this, this is, this, this topic is very controversial because we're going on Twitter again (laughs) and looking at conversations about pulling people out of cults. There was very much this weird emphasis on deprogramming. And then when I started looking into like deprogramming, it was like, that's, that's not the best method. But from your perspective, you know, what approaches work and what approaches don't really work or we should, you know, cast them out as you know, not constructive approaches. Yeah. So what approaches work in terms of pulling and bringing people out of cults? And then what approaches would you say are just, we should just put them in the, in the bin, get rid of them because they're, they're actually don't really work or are not very constructive approaches. Well, first I want to have a caveat, which is, you know, this is not the main kind of work I do. I early on, decided I wasn't going to do what is called exit counseling. You know, deprogramming was when the the old days when worried families essentially kidnapped their kids, their young adult children and had them do, you know, had experts come in and deprogram them. But there was, it was a coercive process because they were kidnapped, you know, and held. And that doesn't happen anymore at least it should I don't believe it does and now there's this voluntary process called exit counseling which I don't do and I the reason I don't do it is because well first I'm just not suited to it my person I think some people are suited to it I don't have the patience and it's very resource intensive you know in a classic cult exit counseling you know it takes the family putting in a lot of resources the family has to learn about what, how cults operate. They often have to hire an exit counselor that, you know, who coaches them, if not directly does it. It takes a lot of time and energy and it doesn't always work. And I'm going to harp on about this. That's why I focus on prevention because I think prevention is a much, I'm not, of course we should have exit counselors. They're important and I'm glad they exist. But from a, a population level approach prevention is going to be a much better use of public resources so i'm just going to say that having said that you know what i do know because i'm in the field is that again we have to provide safe pathways out for people and arguing them with about the ideology in a argumentative way doesn't tend to work it makes people feel defensive and it doesn't make them feel safe and I think from and again I'm not talking too much from personal experience but from other practitioners that I know 
you know, asking, helping them firstly feel safe, building rapport. That's the number one task, that you are not the enemy that you've been made to seem by the cult. And then you can try to, as I spoke about before, try to kind of connect to their non-cult side, whether that's, you know, music or friends or, you know, nature, to keep keep that side alive sort of and able to talk to you. And then you can ask them questions and you're trying to get them to think about the contradictions in between reality and their fictional ideology and also the contradictions between what the cult says it is and what it actually is doing, which that person will be experiencing in their own life in some way. So but it takes quite a lot of knowledge about how the cult operates. So you're going to be trying to ask questions that help the person reflect themselves and come to their own conclusions. I think this is also, I don't know a lot about this, but this motivational interviewing technique, I think is quite compatible with that. But again, these are quite complex things. I don't think they're that easy for people to just know how to do. That's why, you know, the general thing would be try to be nice to people and kind and not too judgmental and you know keep holding your uh, hand out to them Uh, I'm not sure I have a lot more to say about it than that again I want to just say this is not my area of of expertise or, or practice and obviously it's important you know because you've got all these QAnon folks you know and we can't just yeah, we do have to reach a hand out to them in some way, but you may have to find another expert for, for a better view on some of that. Interesting. So we've come to the end of the show. And as I, 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 I don't know if you're going to give me, I have a couple more things I would like to say briefly, if I may. Yeah, yeah. So our, our tradition is always to let, let the guest leave, you know, leave us with something to chew on, to think about, you know, an ending sort of remark to, you know, either spur further research, spur further thinking, however you want to structure it. But give us a a final comment or a final sort of thing to think about. Well, I think, again, I think I've said enough that prevention through teaching at a public health level about the mechanisms of totalist recruitment and indoctrination is key. And I also think we need better legal sanctions. We need and to be able to criminalize these patterns of behavior. And there is some progress in that in the UK with the coercive control law, but it only applies to intimate or family relationships, but it's a very good model that could be applied more broadly to groups. So we have to have some legal sanctions to engage in these behaviors so that we can stop these organizations and stop these leaders. There's also these issues about free speech and freedom of religion that tend to derail discussions about sanctioning these kind of groups. And I would like to say about that, that we have to differentiate between free speech and coerced speech and between free speech and coercive speech. And, you know, those coerced or coercive speech are not free. (laughs) you know and we have to be able to define that and differentiate that and say that those kind of speech should are not free and shouldn't be and then 
you know, I think once, though I was not able to talk much about how you get people out of cults, what I, we do understand quite a lot about how to help people recover afterwards. And those processes involve establishing safety, helping people tell their story to a, a non-judgmental witness, and then helping people reconnect back into the non-cult world. So those processes, you know, are fairly well understood and and we can we can certainly set up programs to help people do that. And there's there's good experience with that. So maybe that's some wrap-up thoughts. Thank you so much. So thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate it. That was the author Alexa Alexandra Stein, the author of Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, Attachment and Cults and Totalitarian Systems. Highly recommended book. Go get it. It's a fast read and it's a very, you know, detailed and, and good distillation of attachment and cults and totalitarian systems. So again, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you.